you turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of Matthew, chapter 7. Matthew, chapter 7. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. First book of the New Testament, the first of the Gospels. We've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, which Jesus gave to his disciples, to those who follow him. We're nearing the end of the Sermon on the Mount this week, and then we will wrap up chapter 7 and the Sermon on the Mount next week. This week we come to what is, in my estimation, one of the weightiest and perhaps one of the most important passages in the Sermon on the Mount for us to hear. It's one that demands that we take serious stock of our faith. One that demands that, that we consider what is truly our standing before the Lord. You'll remember if you've been with us that in chapter 7, Jesus is wrapping up the sermon and he gives four warnings. The first warning that he gave was in seven thirteen to 14 where he warned of a wide gate and a narrow gate that we are to enter the narrow gate. Then he warned us last week of false prophets who will come in to you. They will come to you, come in among you, those who would be false prophets and teachers. Today the word we will hear is a warning of being a false disciple. Let's pray together. Father, I ask, God, that you would bless this time in your word. And I pray that, that we would always approach your word with great seriousness, great humility, a submission to its authority and sufficiency in our lives. God, this morning I particularly ask for wisdom as we work through this text. May it be clear to us. May you use it to encourage those who are believers. May you use it to open the eyes of the hearts of those who are not believers. To bring life to their dead hearts. That they might respond in faith to you. And would you please bless our time in your word now. In Christ's name. Amen. You know, during Jesus' ministry, people were quick to go with the crowd. They are quick to do what was popular, what was convenient, what was easy. It's no different when he sits down for the Sermon on the Mount. And certainly there would be many gathered around to hear his words. And so... In that setting, he delivers these, this teaching from Matthew 7, beginning verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, he's talking about the, the day of judgment, on that day, many will say to me, this isn't just a few, we need to realize this this morning. On that day, on the day of judgment, Hebrews 9.27, we referred to it last week, that, that it is appointed unto man to die once and then to face judgment. So on that day, many, according to Jesus, not a few, many, will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? 
And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And that verse is a hard verse to hear. In that verse, Jesus sets himself and establishes himself as the one with authority to judge. He says, then I will, then will I declare to them, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. Again, we have to be mindful of the fact that, that many certainly would come and, and follow Jesus. We, we see instances of that in, in, chapter, in John where we see the feeding of the 5,000. At the end of that account, what do we see? We see multitudes coming and saying, we want to make Jesus king. Why do they want to make him king? It's because he filled their stomachs. We see the account after account after account in the New Testament. When Jesus is doing great works and miracles and, and healing those who are sick and lame, we see crowds coming to him, all people from all the towns coming to be healed. To see miracles. We see the triumphal entry when Jesus enters into Jerusalem seated on a donkey. And we see the crowd shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. When it's convenient, when it's easy, the crowds quickly follow. They quickly follow. They quickly say what needs to be said. And we need to recognize in our own day, in our own context, that historically for us, it has been very easy to jump in on the bandwagon of Christianity. In our day, in our lifetime, everyone seated here today, it has been quite easy for the most part for you to jump in on the bandwagon of Christianity if that's what you wanted to do. It's been quite easy to go with the flow of Bible Belt religion. It's been quite easy to just kind of plug Christianity into this kind of self-help mentality or this, this uh, uh, desire for greater personal morality to respect and appreciate the moral teachings of Jesus, to respect and appreciate the teachings of Sunday school teachers and preachers that you would come and, and sit under and be encouraged and built up. And it's just easy. In our day, this whole idea of easy believism is alive and well. The idea that I can just raise my hand or I can check a box or I can just walk an aisle or I can pray a prayer and nothing change. And I'll go through the rest of my life, go into church and just be a Christian, although I don't live like a Christian. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace, that I would profess something, I would say something, I would claim to be a Christian, but I never sacrifice. I would claim that Christ is my Savior with no sacrifice for Christ. I wouldn't follow him. I wouldn't take up my cross and follow him. But when Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mountain, particularly when he comes to this passage today, he reveals the risk and the cost of cheap grace. He reveals the risk and the cost of easy believism. He reveals the risk and the cost of Bible Belt religion, of just checking a box and coming and saying, I'm a Christian when you truly aren't. The risk is, is that, that you would risk saying what you are not, that you would risk saying, hey, I'm a, I'm a Christian, but you really aren't. And the cost is weighty. The cost is eternity in hell <laughs> under the awful wrath, not of Satan, under the awful wrath of God Almighty. You see, you don't go to hell and get punished by Satan. Satan is in hell getting punished as well. You go to hell 
for not believing in Christ, not trusting in Christ, and you are under the awful wrath of God. That is the risk and the cost of walking around with this cheap grace, this easy believism, this false assurance that I'm a Christian, but I'm not really a Christian. So we can't come to this text and just take it lightly. We can't come to this text and read and say, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And then there will be many that Jesus says, he will look and say, I never knew you. We can't just lightly come to this text. We can't flippantly just hear it and go, well, okay, good. Now let's go eat lunch. This text should shake us to our core. This text should cause us to sit up in our seat. This text should perk up our eyes no matter how late we were up last night to consider Jesus' teachings. So I want us to look at a contrast of two people here. The false disciple and the true disciple. We look first at the the false disciple in verse 21, starting in 21. What I I want us to observe in the false disciple is his words, his works, and his relationship, or lack thereof. His words, his works, and his relationships. So first, the, the words of the false disciple. The words of the false disciple. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Essentially, what Jesus is confronting is this view that, that saying certain words, Lord, Lord, is like these magic words that get me in. You know, as a kid, when you, somebody says, hey, let me in. What's the magic word? And, of course, you always pick the magic word no one can pick, right? Well, the magic word just lets you in, and we, we kind of can approach our Christian walk, our, our confession of faith. It's like these magic words, like the, the sinner's prayer for them, Lord, Lord, that it would be magic. And we would just go in. We say the right things, we're in. But Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. This should indeed, as I said a second ago, it should shock us. It should cause us to take a step back. Because it's telling us that there will be some who stand before God. And in that day, they think they have said the right things. They think they have claimed the right things. And they stand before God Almighty and they were wrong. They're wrong. They said, Lord, Lord, or they articulated and said and repeated the sinner's prayer. And Jesus looks and he says, no. It's not repeating a set of words. It's not claiming, Lord, Lord, that gets you into heaven. It's not sufficient. Saying, Lord, Lord, or saying any other verbal repetition or just whatever it might be is not sufficient for salvation. It's not sufficient for salvation. What we have to understand is it is possible for a verbal confession to disguise an unregenerate, a lost heart. It is possible to say the right things. It is possible to have converted speech and never have a converted life. Romans 10, 9 through 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and, is an important word, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Listen, the verbal confession of Christ is important. It is important. So if you're one that will say, yo, I believe, but I just, I just don't want to confess it. I just don't want to tell people I'm embarrassed, I'm shy. The verbal confession of Jesus as Lord is important. 
It is important. But it is not everything. It is not that it alone saves. If you confess to your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verbal confession is important, but it must not be without heart belief. And so all week, and even leading up to this sermon, in the back of my mind, I've been thinking when we stand here, when I stand here and deliver this sermon, I wonder how many people are going to be hearing, whether you're sitting here today or you're tuning in online or you watch it later and you're sitting here and you're listening and you've made this verbal profession, you make this verbal claim, Lord, Lord, but you do not possess a heart that believes. Is that you? Is that you? So we see the words of the false disciples. And then we see the works of the false disciple. Look at verse 22. What do they appeal to? So verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, what do they claim? They, they say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? I mean, God, look at all that we did. Look how religious we were. Look at all the mighty works. Now, if you, if you just back up and you remember what we looked at last week, you, you remember that in verse 15 to 20, that performing mighty works and wonders alone is not a sign of a true teacher. Works and wonders alone do not show us that it is a true teacher. You can still be a false prophet, a false teacher, and do these great mighty works. You can go back and read Deuteronomy 13, 1 to 5. Where Moses instructs the people and says, if somebody's doing all these mighty works and wonderful things, and yet they're leading you to worship a false god, then don't follow them. It's a false prophet. So just doing great things, doing religious things, prophesying, healing, all these things, that does not mean you're a believer. You can do all the religious things you want to do. You can go to camp. You can go to mission trip. Students, you can go to Disciple Now. You can come to Oasis. You go to Sunday school. And still be lost. Still be lost. Jesus is confronting the idea of those who would call him Lord and, and they're basing their justification on their religious deeds. They're saying, look what we did. Look what I did. Jesus, I, I stood up on Sunday mornings and I preached. I preached your word. Look what I did. I went and visited people. I went to the hospital. I went to seminary. Look at what I did. Look at what I did. Appealing to works for justification. But the problem is that one can do religious works void of any genuine relationship with God. Void of any true desire for holiness. And look at what they did. They even, they even did it in his name. They said, look, did, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? Again, Jesus' name is not like a magic word. That we just do what we want to do and we tag his name on and then that's good. Look, look at Acts 19 for a moment. Acts 19. If you want an example of this, Acts 19. Being in verse 11, we have the account of the sons of Sceva. Acts 19, beginning in verse 11, 
I'm going to start reading verse 11. You can pick up with me. Acts is uh, four, cha- four books to your right in your Bible. Acts chapter 19. Here's what we read. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. Now listen to this. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord, Jesus, over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name, by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Now get this, verse 15. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. The name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. A number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. They counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And you, you had the sons of Sceva walking around. And they were doing essentially this same thing. They were doing these mighty works and just tagging on and saying, hey, in the name of Jesus we do this. They may have been fooling man. They weren't fooling our Lord and they weren't even fooling the evil spirit who mastered them and ran them out of the house in a quite humiliating fashion. What's the basis for your salvation? What are you counting on? Are you, are you counting on something you said? Are you counting on the religious things that you do? Well, what's, the, what's the basis of your salvation? Is it your own works? Or is the basis of your salvation the work of Christ on the cross? Is it the things that you do? Or is it what Christ has done on the cross? Is it the time or the money that you give? Or is it what Christ gave on the cross? What's the basis of your salvation? Listen to what I said. Look at what I did. So the works, the words, the third description of the false disciple, it's his relationship. Look at verse 23. What is the problem of the false disciple? Because Jesus would declare to them, I never knew you. These are words that I would pray that no one in this room would ever hear. There would never be that moment in time where Jesus looks at you and said, I never knew you. I never knew you. 
The, the word know here is not an intellectual knowledge. It refers to a relational knowledge, a relational knowing, a, a, a part of the family that you are known. It's not as if Jesus is going, huh, <laughs> I didn't realize you existed. <laughs> Crazy me. I thought I was all-knowing and I just didn't know that. That's not what Jesus is saying. This is not some intellectual lacking or deficiency in Christ. It's pointing to the fact that he did not know them relationally. He did not have a relationship with them. You can mark down Amos 3, 2. It's a, a beautiful description when God's talking about his people, Israel, and he says that you only have I known of all the families of the earth. He's not saying, I didn't realize there were other nations. This is crazy. Wow, what a shocker. No, he's saying, you only have I known. You only have I had a relationship with. You alone. The mutual knowledge of a relationship between man and God is essential to salvation. You need to know that today, that the mutual knowledge between man and God, that God knows you and you know God, is essential for salvation. Here, here are these passages. Matthew eleven twenty seven 27 says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Right? So it is who the Son knows. The only one that knows the Father is the one whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Do you know God? Jesus teaches in John 10, 27 to 28, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will ever snatch them out of my hands. What is eternal life defined as? Do you remember what Jesus etern defines eternal life as in John 17, 3? He said, this is eternal life, that they know you. That they know you. The one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus says, you want to know what eternal life is? It is to know him to have a relationship with him. So here's the critical question this morning. It's not, what did you say? It's not, what did you do? The critical question is, do you know Jesus Christ? And does he know you? Do you have a relationship? I'm not asking if you know about Jesus. I'm not asking if you can recite facts about Jesus. I'm not asking if you can answer all the questions for Orthodox Christianity. I'm not asking if you can write a theological paper. I'm not asking if you know when to say Jesus in Sunday school. I'm asking, do you have a relationship with Christ? Do you know him? Does he know you? I'm not asking even that you would concede and say, yes, Jesus is God. As James tells us and teaches in James 2, 19, that you believe God is one, he says, you do well. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. It's not a question of I would just recognize and, and say that Jesus is God. The demons do the same. You remember what the demons said to the sons of Sceva? I know Jesus. I know who that is. He knows. You think Satan's down there wondering, or wherever he is, wondering, oh, I wonder who Jesus is. No, he knows who Jesus is. Not asking that. I want to know, do you have a relationship with Christ? Listen, it only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It only comes when you turn from your sin and trust in him and your broken relationship is restored and reconciled by God. It's not what you say. It's not what you do. It's about who you know. And the consequence of not having a relationship with Christ is eternal punishment and damnation and hell. When Jesus says these words, he says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, he's quoting Psalm 6.8. He's simply quoting Psalm 6.8. 
later in Matthew chapter 25. We'll get to uh, down the road. Jesus' words at the final judgment. Listen to what he says. The final judgment. He says, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You're going to join them. Depart from me. Why? Because you don't have a relationship. Listen, I, I want you to know this morning that the grace and the love and the mercy of God gives great beauty to the gospel. It gives great beauty and richness to the gospel. But you must also know that the holiness, righteousness, and justice of God gives great weight and seriousness and consequence to the gospel. Don't just fall on the grace, love, and mercy. Never consider the fact and the reality that God is a holy, righteous, just God. He's merciful and gracious to save, but He is holy and just and righteous to punish those deserving of sin. And we all deserve it. The only way that you're saved is to repent and to trust in Christ. You know, the beauty of salvation described in Scripture, you know, two of the key words we think about salvation in Scripture, what God does in saving us is adoption and reconciliation. Two beautiful words. Do you hear what's unique about those two words? They both are anchored, rooted, established in relationship. Adoption and reconciliation. Broken relationship made whole. Adoption. One who is a stranger, a strange enemy of God. Brought near as a child of God. So the false disciple. Are you depending on your words? Are you depending on your works? Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Now, Let's set that here and let's look at the true disciple. True disciple. The second part of verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. This is a consistent theme in the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' teaching. That the true follower of his obeys, the true follower of his does the will of God. Matthew 5, 19, he said, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so, or to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 6, 10, we're taught to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we talked about that day, and we covered that sermon. That's not just something that we go, Hey, let's pray for that, and let's move on and live however we want. No, we pray for that because we long for it, and we're trying to live according to God's will. Later, Matthew 7, 24, we'll, we'll look at it next week. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man. We are to do what God says. We are to follow his will. Matthew 12, verse 50, when identifying who his true family is, you know what Jesus says? He says, my true family is whoever does the will of my Father in heaven. These are my brothers, my sister, and my mother. It's obedience. 
So is Jesus teaching a work-based salvation here then? Is Jesus saying, hey, it's not just about saying, Lord, Lord, you need to do things because you earn your salvation? Is that what he's saying? No. No. He's teaching genuine salvation. Genuine salvation. So then the question then, if, if that's the case, then what does it mean? What does it mean to do the will of God? What does that mean? If he's not teaching work-based salvation, what does that mean? Well, first, it's what Paul referred to in the beginning and end of Romans, Romans 1.5 and Romans 6.26, as the obedience of faith. It's the obedience of faith. Or, as the reformers said, that salvation is by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. Right? A helpful way to think about it. So we see this throughout Scripture, that genuine salvation is seen and viewed by fruitful living, by obeying the Lord, by walking in Him, walking according to His will, pursuing Him, following Him. In Luke 6, 46, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? In that passage in Luke, He comes into a similar teaching, what we're going to look at next week, about the one who builds his house on the rock or on the sand. Right? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't obey? You don't do what I tell you to do. In John 14, 23 to 24, Jesus answered him, I, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. We will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. Obedience, critical in showing that you are a true believer. James 1, 22, what does James say? He says, Be doers of the word, not merely hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Later, go into your Bible and read James chapter 2, verse 14 to 26. It's a lengthy passage where James makes the case and the argument and teaches that it's not just faith. Faith that saves is never alone. Faith that saves is shown through works. It's shown through works. He even says in verse 18 of chapter 2 in James, he says, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe, here's where he said it, we talked about this a second ago you believe that God is one you do well even the demons believe and shudder great for you do you want to be shown you foolish person that faith is apart from works is useless was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son on the altar you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness salvation is by faith alone but faith that saves is never alone. It's important. We don't just get saved and go, hey, we don't care about personal holiness. We don't care about following God. I'm just going to live however I want to. That's not what we see in Scripture. That's not the teaching of Christ. If you think that is the case, then you have been deceived by a false teacher. You don't need to continue listening to that individual. We come to the Great Commission Right? We think about the Great Commission. It's the commission that, that Jesus gives us and sends us out to do missions, to take the gospel to all nations, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what are we to do? Well, hey, let's baptize them and let's leave them. Let's go to the next place. Let's don't worry about it. Who cares? They're saved. They can live however they want. No, that's not what he says. In verse 20, don't forget verse 20. Verse 20 says, what do we do? We baptize them and then what? We teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. We teach them to observe. In 1 Peter 1, verse 13 to 16, you have this beautiful passage where Peter, writing to a church in exile, a church that is experiencing great, great trial and tribulation, he says, therefore, preparing your mind for action and being so reminded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So set your hope on him. Place your faith in him. 
But then what? As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you be holy in all your conduct. Why? Because it is written, as I am holy, you be holy. The holiness of God drives us, compels us, leads us to be holy as well. We're not trying to earn our salvation. Peter is not teaching a works-based salvation. Jesus is not teaching a works-based salvation. None of Scripture teaches a works-based salvation. But it's very clear that our salvation results in works. It results in a longing and desire to do the will of God. 1 John 3, 24 says, Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. Listen, the true believer has a concern for personal holiness and obedience to God. The true believer has a concern, has a longing to live for God. The the true believer is the one who depends not on works for salvation, but is eager to obey the Lord as a result of salvation. Obedience marks the true believer as as, as Jesus' disciple. It marks the true believer. Why? Because he submits to Jesus as Lord. He he is our master, and so we long to obey him. We long to follow him. So for the true believer, God's word and God's will is not something that we we just pray for. It's not something that we go, wow, that's some great ethics there. Wow, that's a good life. We're just going, we just appreciate it. No, it's something we long to do. One commentator said this, he said, it is true, of course, that no man enters the kingdom because of his obedience, but it is equally true that no man enters the kingdom who is not obedient. It's exactly what James taught, that true saving faith will always result in a life that seeks to obey God's will. Listen, if if you sit in here today and have no desire No desire to live according to God's will. That should be a red flag. If you have no affections for the Lord, if you have no longing to live for His glory, you need to examine your heart. You need to take a hard look in the mirror. So that leaves a question, I think. It should leave a question. How how can I know? How how can I know? You're you're saying that it's not just on what I say, not just what I do, it's this relationship. How do how do I I know? Let Let me give you four things as we close today. The first thing, if you want to know, if you read this passage and I think rightly read it and go, wow. God, this is a hard statement. How do you know? Here's the first thing. is One, you need to examine your life in faith. Examine your life in faith. Truly examine. Paul Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. He said, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Paul, Paul said, listen, examine yourselves. Listen, one, one of the worst things you can do, one of the most dangerous things you can do is to read this text, to have some doubts, and then just push them away and never sit down in front of the mirror and examine yourself. And by mirror, I mean picking up God's word, 
reading it, seeking the face of the Lord. Scripture teaches us that the Holy Spirit confirms within us that we are His. If you're a child of God, He will affirm that. If you're a child of God, He is in you. Paul says, you not realize this about yourself, Jesus Christ is in you. You have nothing to fear by examining yourself. Because either you're going to be encouraged and affirmed that Christ is in me, the hope of glory. I've been saved. I've been redeemed. I'm adopted. I've been reconciled. I'm a child of his. And I know him and he knows me. Praise the Lord. I rejoice in his grace. Or, thanks be to God, he says, no, you've been trusting what you say. You've been trusting what you do. You don't have a relationship with me. And thanks be to God, if God reveals that to you, and it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter how long you've come here, it doesn't matter how many classes you've taught or what you've said or what trips you've gone on, praise the Lord, we would surround you and rejoice if you said, I've been living a lie, I've been deceived, I was deceived by others, I was deceived by my own heart, I was counting on what I said or what I did, I wasn't counting on what Christ did. And I'm turning my life over to Christ. That would be great cause for rejoicing. A lie of Satan is if in the event that that happens that you would come forward and you would be embarrassed. That's a lie of Satan. We would rejoice with you in the great salvation of our God. So the first thing, examine yourself. Second, ask yourself this question. Have you responded appropriately to the biblical gospel? Have have you responded appropriately? Listen, the, the appropriate response is not confess and do this. It's not faith plus works. The appropriate response is not believe in Christ and then go live however you want to live. The the appropriate response is not confess Christ and just forget about everything else. You're good. No. The appropriate response is what? Repent and believe. That you would hear the message that, that the holy God who created you in his image and saw your rebellion knows that you're separated from him, knows that your, your relationship with him is broken and that you are deserving of, of death and punishment, of his wrath. And he knows that you can't do anything to remove that. You can't do anything to satisfy his wrath or his holiness. And knowing that, he sends Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, God made man. He took on flesh and he lives a perfect life and he dies a sacrificial death in your place. And he rises from the grave three days later and then ascends to heaven to reign and intercede on behalf of his people. And the great promise is that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, anyone who confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead will be saved. And that person, he adopts, he reconciles. He knows. And you know him. The response is to repent and believe when you hear the gospel. What does that look like? It looks like following Jesus. Remember what he said in John 10, 27, my sheep know my voice and they follow me. What does it look like in Matthew 10, 38 and 16, 24? It means taking up your cross and following him. Giving it all for Christ. The third thing I would put before you. So first, examine your life. Second, 
Ask, have I responded appropriately to the gospel message? Third, is it evidenced in your life? Is it evidenced? Do you see the fruit of salvation in your life? Do you see a longing to do God's will? Do you see growth in the fruits of the Spirit? Do you see growth in, in love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control? Do you see those things being manifested more and more in your life? Not perfect in those areas, but you see growth in those areas. Do you, do you have affections for God? Do you, do you want to worship? Do you want to worship? Do you, you say, I, I just want to sing unto my God. I'm not so worried about all the other peripheral things. I just want to worship God. Like, everything that goes on in life, everything that's coming up, all the challenges, I, I, I just want to worship. I, I want to worship because I love Him. Do you have a concern for the things of God? Do you see that? Is that evidence that, that the things of God, that Scripture talks about, the salvation lost, the glory of His name, the unity of the church, things of that nature, do you have a concern for those things? Does it matter to you? Is there a genuine sense of thanksgiving in your heart? That, that when you hear, when you hear the word, when you hear the gospel message, when you hear the songs, you see the words, is there just this genuine sense of thanksgiving within you? That you just kind of, maybe literally, or maybe you just, within, you just kind of shake your head and say, wow. <laughs> Are you truly amazed by grace? The last thing I, I would say is, you want to really know, go home and read 1 John. Go home and read 1 John. It's why John wrote. He, he wrote this letter so that you might know, he said. Listen, I, I can post these passages later for you. But listen to what he says all throughout 1 John. In, in chapter 1, 5, and 6, 2, 29, and 3, 9, and 10, he says, living in righteousness, light, rather than darkness, which is sin. That's how you know. How do you know? Like you're living in light of Christ. You're walking in righteousness. How do you know? In chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, it's, he says, you know because you're honest with sin in your lives. Chapter 2 and chapter 5, he says, you know by the fact that you want to keep his commands. Later in chapter 2, 3, and 4, he talks about we know because we have a love for our brothers. We have a love for other Christians. Do you have a love for other Christians? He says you know in chapter 2, again, by not loving the ways of the world. Do you love the ways of the Lord or the ways of the world? Which one captivates you more? Again in chapter 3, he says that you know by doing and speaking loving deeds and truths. If you do and you speak loving deeds and loving truths into people's lives, then that's a good indicator. In chapter 5, a good indicator is believing that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. You truly believe that. You truly believe that he came and he died and he paid the price for your sins and he rose from the grave. You truly believe that. In chapter 5, verse 1, do you love God? By this you know. Do you love God? You just love him. Chapter 3 and chapter 5 talk about we would know and that we would not habitually live in sin. Is sin something that you just habitually run to and live in and wallow in like a pig? Those are all indicators in John. 
Listen, this passage in Matthew, I think, is a hard passage. It's a passage that is a hard reminder that we have to make sure that we are truly trusting Jesus Christ alone for salvation. That it is by faith alone. We're not trusting in what we say. We're not trusting in what we do. We're trusting in Christ alone, by faith alone, according to his grace alone for salvation. Have you responded appropriately? It's, it's not enough to just know the gospel. It's, it's, it's not enough to, to just do religious things. It's not enough to have Christian vernacular, to be able to say the right things, to use the right words. What's required for salvation is repentant faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. Repent and believe. Confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's it. That's it. And if that's the case, there will be evidence in your life. There will be evidence in your life. If you are one that's saying, well, I'm a Christian because when I was 8 or when I was 14, I did this. And yet, none of the things that Scripture would say characterizes the true follower of Christ is true of you. Would you please do me a favor? And examine your heart before the Lord. Would you please look to God? There's three types of people sitting here today. Some, some of you are true followers of Jesus. You're true followers of Jesus. Some, some of you are true unbelievers. And you know it. So there's someone here who says, I'm a believer, praise the Lord. I'm depending wholly on God's grace. And there's some of you who say, I'm an unbeliever. I'm not following him. I don't want anything to do with him. There's a third group that perhaps possibly thinks you're a believer, but you're not. It's a frightening place to be sitting. And so I would ask, what group are you in? Where are you at? How will you respond? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for speaking what you spoke in that moment on the mount. God, every time that I come across that passage, it just strikes me. God, I fear 
that in our day, there, there are too many, depending on some words they said or some things they do. And they have no relationship with you, God. And I pray that if that describes anyone in this place, that God, the weight of your conviction upon them would be so heavy that they could not bear it, Lord. God, that they would be driven to their knees, that they would be driven to look to you in faith and respond, to quit hiding, to quit pretending, to turn to you in faith repenting of their sins and trusting you as Lord, believing and knowing in their heart that you raised from the grave, Lord Jesus. Please. God, I pray for those who are unbelievers. They're here and they say, I'm, I know I'm not a believer. I'm not. God, I pray that you would do a great work in their life. God, that you would help them to see that there are a lot of messages, a lot of things going on, but our hope is found only in Christ, in Christ alone, only in Christ is hope that never fails, never disappoints, never changes. But God, for the rest of us, God, would you fill us with a great joy and great peace in our salvation in you? Now, those who are here that are true believers, who are trusting in your finished work on the cross would you give us a moment just to rejoice in that and to sing that our hope is in you in life and death it is in no other it is not in what we said not in what we do but it's in the fact that we have been known by you and we know you we've been adopted and reconciled and God in that we rejoice we rejoice today oh God we worship you we worship you we praise you Lord Jesus Amen.